and welcome to Deep North, the official podcast of Iceland Review. My name is Alina Maurer and today we'll be doing a special episode on the recent geological unrest on the Reykjanes Peninsula, in conversation with staff writer Ragnar Thomas. Hey Alina. Hey. So before we discuss the most recent events, I suppose we should begin by winding back the clock to 2021. Yeah, that's right. So uh, in March of 2021, an eruption began on the Reykjanes Peninsula, um, which followed a period of nearly 800 years in which no volcanic eruptions had occurred in the area. And um, volcanologists were quick to speculate that the Reykjanes Peninsula was most likely coming to life, volcanically speaking, because um, geological activity on the Reykjanes Peninsula is characterized by alternating phases of seismic and volcanic activity. Um, so it typically involves periods of intense seismic activity lasting about 800 years, followed by around 500 years of volcanic activity. And this is a cycle that's a result of the tectonic environment of the region. Um, because it's located on the boundary between the North American and the Eurasian tectonic plates, and it's the movement of these plates that influences the geological processes in the area, which leads to these distinct periods of seismic and volcanic activity. And so the current volcanic phase owes to the fact that these plates are moving apart. And as the plates diverge, you have magma from the mantle rising up to fill the gap, which leads to volcanic eruptions. And so you had this first eruption, which took place in in March of 2021, as I mentioned, and it was characterized by volcanologists and scientists as you know, they, they used the term wimpy. And it was, uh, you know, uh, something of a tourist eruption. It was situated far from inhabited areas and the lava flow was relatively tame. Uh, and, and that eruption was, was referred to as the Keltingatalur eruption and it lasted about six months. And um, as I noted, that it was after the start of this first eruption that experts predicted that more eruptions would likely follow in the peninsula in the coming decades, uh, if not centuries. Yeah, so the first eruption was very tourist-friendly. Did you, did you see it yourself? Yeah, we, um, I made it out there once, and it was actually quite an Icelandic experience because me and my uh, wife decided to go. I think our mother-in-law was watching the kids, and it just so happened that we met my parents at the foot of the volcano, um, just completely randomly. We had no idea that they were going. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Maybe not so once-in-a-lifetime as it turns out, but definitely being there for the first time, sitting on the side of the hill, watching the lava spew, um, I think when we were there, it was really quite powerful, so the jets were rising uh, dozens of meters into the air, and we were quite close, and it was during twilight, so it was really quite beautiful, and yeah, just sharing a, a beer with with my father <laughs> was, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite unique, so uh, that was interesting, and we did some re reporting on that eruption for the magazine as well. Yes, it was similar for me. I went, I think, two days after it started, and I also thought, hey, this is like a unique experience, once in a lifetime, and now it has happened two times <laughs> more, so that doesn't really count anymore. <laughs> no. But it's still pretty special to see it every single time. Yeah, definitely. 
So I believe you also um, wrote a certain article on the first uh, eruption in the magazine. Yeah, um, and during that article, I actually spoke to, a, I think he's the chief of the fire department now in Krintavik, which is the town on the southern coast of the peninsula. Um, and he was actually probably one of the first people to become aware that there was an eruption going on because he received a phone call from the head of the rescue department in Grindavik, um, and this person knew where he, where his house is located, so he lives on the edge of town. So he asked him, you know, could you please step outside and look um, north? You know, what is that that you're seeing, the lights there? And he was first, he, he thought it, he attributed it to the lights from the Vogar, uh, another small town on the other side of the peninsula, but... Then he realized that, yeah, this was an eruption was starting and and just almost in his backyard. Um, so that was interesting. And then, of course, uh, as you know, we have we've had two more similar eruptions follow um, one in 2022 and then another one earlier this year. So and, and those were referred to as the Meratalit eruption and the Litlirutur eruption. Um, and, and the latter was actually a bit stronger than the first two. It caused quite a bit of stress on the rescue teams because there were a lot of wildfires. Um, but none of these three eruptions, however, impacted inhabited areas or infrastructure. But, you know, that would change in late October of this year. Yes, a lot has happened since October. And, I mean, you just need to check every day <laughs> because new things are just unraveling so fast. Uh, so when did this all start? When did the earthquakes begin? Yeah, so I think right around uh, midnight, October 25th, that was when the Reykjanes Peninsula experienced uh, a swarm of relatively minor earthquakes, which were concentrated in the area around the town of Grindavik. And as I mentioned, it's this is a small fishing town on the southern coast of the Reykjanes Peninsula, and it's home to about 4,000 people. And what we had um, uh, following this swarm of earthquakes was measurement showing that there was land uplift occurring, uh, which is an indicator of magma intrusion. And this was unique because uh, the land was rising once again only three months after the conclusion of the eruption at Litlirutur. And that was, yeah, that was the first time that we've seen something like that, like that happened so quickly after the conclusion of another eruption. And then what we had was um, following a few days of continued tremors and land uplift, there was a 4.2 magnitude earthquake that struck the area just west of the Blue Lagoon. Um, and although there were no signs that an eruption was imminent, the Department of Civil Protection and Emergency Management declared an uncertainty phase um, because magma was sort of intruding um, at in an area that was sort of worryingly close both to the Blue Lagoon and to the Schwarzenke geothermal power plant. Uh, and that's a power plant which supplies um, all of the Reykjanes residents with hot water, cold water, and electricity. So um, so <clears throat> was it also around that time that a important press conference was held? Yeah, so I think... Given the proximity of the seismic activity, both to the town of Grindavik, to the power plant, to the Blue Lagoon, that um, a lot of people became a little bit anxious about the situation. 
And so you have the, the Department of Civil Protection and Emergency Management um, holding a press conference on November 6th. And that's when we heard from, among other people, the head of the natural hazards, uh, natural hazard monitoring at the Icelandic Met Office, Kristin Jónsdóttir, who's actually been uh, in, in the news a lot every time there's, that there's an eruption. And she noted during that press conference that, you know, this may be uh, a more powerful volcanic event, you know, th- that this was it was within the realm of possibility that something a bit stronger than the first three eruptions would occur. And she noted that magma was accumulating at a depth of about five kilometers below the surface. And given the threat that this posed, um, most notably to the Svartsenki power plant, we had uh, backup generators being moved to Grindavik. Yeah, and I mean, there was a lot of turmoil also about the Blue Lagoon, which is basically just right next to the Svartsenki power plant. Right, so the water in the lagoon is actually a byproduct from the um, from the power plant. I, I'm not a scientist, but as far as I understand, you have these sort of the superheated water that's vented from the ground, and uh, it's used to run turbines that generate electricity. And after passing through these turbines... Um, the, th- the steam in the hot water passes through a kind of heat exchanger to provide heat for the municipal water heating system, and then this water is, is fed into the lagoon. And, and actually, on the day following the press conference, um, the tour company Reykjavik Excursions, which is one of the largest tour operators in Iceland, and it operates, I think, the largest fleet of buses in the country, announced that it would be suspending transportation to the Blue Lagoon. And this decision followed on the heels of criticism that the Blue Lagoon, which is obviously one of the more, if not the most popular tourist attraction in Iceland, was not adequately informing visitors about the ongoing geological unrest. So we had a lot of news reports um, preceding this announcement where we had reporters from both the National Broadcaster and Channel 2 sort of standing outside the facilities, speaking to visitors and asking them if they had any idea what was going on, and um, rather surprisingly, n- none of them seemed to have have any idea what was going on, so that was worrying. On the day of the press conference that we have Ulvar Ludvigsson, who's um, the commissioner of the Sudanese police, he referred to the Blue Lagoon's decision to keep their, dis- keep their facilities open as quote-unquote irresponsible. Two days later, on Thursday, November 9th, you have the Blue Lagoon announcing that it's going to be closing all of its facilities for one week. So this announcement also came on the heels of, of uh, what I understand was a, a rather terrifying night for some of the guests at the Blue Lagoon Hotel. Um, there was um, a report from local media outlet in Reykjanes called Vikurfretter, which um, reported that there had been some 40 guests who were staying at the hotel who had called taxi cabs in the middle of the night and asked to be transported away from the area because there was a lot of earthquakes going on. I heard about that, and I think there was also some storms falling in the in the um, lobby and all big drama <laughs> during that night. Yeah, so, I mean, anyone who's been to the Blue Lagoon, you have these sort of big boulders near the entrance in the foyer of the facility, and apparently some of them, some of these rocks uh, moved during the earthquakes, which I imagine uh, was not particularly uh, reassuring. 
No, not very pleasant <laughs> experience, especially if you don't really haven't ever experienced uh, an earthquake in your life and you don't know if it's safe or not. Exactly. Um, but also, like on November tenth, things really picked up, seismically speaking. Is that true? Yeah, that was um, that was the sort of the biggest day um, in this current sort of process of geological unrest. This latest swarm of earthquakes and activity, um, and we saw. So it was November 10th, um, starting around the afternoon, the earth, earth started shaking again. And I actually have, I have family in Grindavik, so I remember I had been thinking of them constantly uh, since late October. Um, and, you know, always been thinking, well, I should probably hear from them. And, uh, but things seemed to die down and pick up again. So, but it was on, on that Friday that, you know, I, I sent a message to my aunt at around six o'clock, because this was the first time that we really uh, felt the earthquakes in the capital area, or at least uh, I felt the earthquakes keenly from where I'm living in Hapnafjörður. And um, she was very quick to respond to my message, and it was like, uh, we're leaving, you know, we're getting out of here. And you could tell that, yeah, people were obviously quite anxious. Um, and actually, uh, I have a cousin so my aunt's daughter, who, who also lives there with four children, and she was um, away on an errand with her son in Reykjavik, and then she just received a call from two of her daughters who were quite shaken up because, yeah, the earthquakes were quite big. And, uh, yeah, she, she described sort of going back to Grindavik, driving against traffic. You have all these people just deciding to leave, and then she's going back into town, and it was like um, you know, it was the start of a disaster movie or something. So it was quite the harrowing experience, and, and there's been a lot of videos and footage from, from that night. Um, but so what happens during that day is that later that night, uh, sometime between 10 and 11 p.m., the Department of Civil Protection and Emergency Management, quite the mouthful, mm -hmm. um, orders a mandatory evacuation. And this comes amid concerns that the intrusion of magma, magma, which was believed to extend below the town, would reach the surface. Um, and so the evacuation was mandatory, but it wasn't an emergency evacuation. So the residents were given two or three hours to get out of town, and they were encouraged to pack necessities, unplug electrical appliances, and to put signs in their windows to confirm that their homes had indeed been evacuated. And subsequently, the Red Cross in Iceland um, announced that it would open three emergency relief centers in the capital area. Yeah, so so I was also following the news on that Friday night because we also, as you already said, we felt the earthquakes quite a lot in Reykjavik. Yeah. So as you check the news on the Friday, it the situation just kept getting worse and, and the worst case scenario kind of just uh, came in. So did things quiet down a bit over the weekend? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I, I mean, I think most of our team at Iceland Review was staying up uh, quite late that night trying to monitor the situation. And it seemed like it was, I mean, it seemed like there was a, a volcanic eruption quite imminent. But then um, things sort of quietly died down over that weekend. And by Sunday, November 12th, the authorities decided to sort of oversee the re-entry of residents to uh, the Thorkötlustaður neighborhood, which is um, the easternmost part of Grindavík, which was least 
affected by the subsidence, which is sort of the, the sinking of the ground and the earthquakes. And uh, ever since the, the authorities have allowed residents and companies back into town to retrieve valuables in relatively small numbers, almost on a daily, near daily basis since, since that Friday. And um, this operation, obviously quite complicated, trying to accommodate 4,000 people and organizing uh, the whole thing. So what we saw early on was that the residents of Kunandawik were quite um, critical of how this was being handled. We had a lot of interviews with people who had waited in long lines um, in their cars, hoping to get inside or, or being allowed re-entry, but they weren't, and they were complaining that some people had been allowed to go more than one or two times while some had not been allowed to visit at all. And um, since then, we have had the authorities take up this sort of new registration system, uh, which involves residents filling out these registration forms online, and then they're contacted. So things appear to be going a bit more smooth these days. So initially, there was quite a lot of worry about uh, the animals in the area, because there were, I think there was a chicken farm and just a lot of pets and cats. What, what was the situation with that? Yeah, so... Um, when the town was evacuated, obviously many of the animals were left behind, and you had um, an organization specifically called Tirfina, which uh, had gathered information about all the animals that had been left behind in Krindavik, um, and were hoping to sort of retrieve them on behalf of their owners. Um, but they were obviously not deemed a sort of priority during the first few days, so you had quite the number of animals, um, numerous cats, horses, and I think chickens in the thousands um, from the farm. Long story short, eventually they managed to retrieve some of the animals as more and more people were permitted into town again. Exactly. And also people were not voluntarily leaving behind their animals, but uh, I also heard from some citizens of Kuntavik who basically were just out of town working and they weren't even let back into the town once they started to evacuate it. So they, they physically just couldn't pick up their pets. So Right, that's it. Yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, very difficult for, for a number of people and we saw a lot of people quite worried, understandably so. Exactly. Did your aunt manage to get all of her essentials out of Kuntavik? So I, uh, I'm not sure about my aunt, she lives in the part of town that is actually, I think, designated as the most hazardous area because it's in this subsidence valley sort of thing where it's that area of town that has sunk uh, most considerably since the earthquake started. So it's likely, given how damaging subsidence can be to homes that, that are, are places, you know, quite damaged. I don't know the extent of the damage, but... Um, but I did speak to my cousin who had been, I think, uh, I spoke to her last Sunday, and she had been allowed, I think, on at least two occasions back home. But, of course, it's it's very difficult. I mean, you don't know how long you'll be away, if you'll be, you know, the residents of Grindavikar facing this sort of complete uncertainty at the moment. We've heard um, civil protection authorities say, well, it might be many months before they're allowed to return. Um, it may be sooner. And so for people to return to their homes, the question of, okay, what do I take and what do I leave behind is 
you know, it's um, sort of informed by all this uncertainty. So I think, yeah, I mean, they were able to retrieve most of the sort of bare necessities of life, clothes and, and, and stuff like that, medicine and um, toiletries, what have you. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just this great uncertainty that hovers above the whole situation. And I mean, as we're recording today, there still hasn't been an eruption, but uh, we're still seeing some geological unrest ongoing. Okay, that's quite extensive. Um, it will be interesting to see how the rift will continue to grow. Hopefully, not too much, but it uh, looks quite grim for now. So, the authorities began constructing lava barriers for the Swartz Enki power plant. How is that going? Yeah, so at the time that we're recording this on Wednesday, November 22nd, the first phase of the project is nearing completion. And the first phase is basically the erection of barriers that are three meters high and that roughly encircle the power plant. And this is an extensive project involving um, over 50 workers who operate continuously around the clock in 12-hour shifts. And when the authorities announced the project, they mentioned that uh, it would be funded through taxpayer money. And this came under some criticism by uh, among others, Wilhelmur Birgisson, who's a chairman of the Confederation of Labor, who asked why citizens should pay for a protective barrier that will surround a for-profit company that's made quite a lot of money uh, over the past years. Um, well, two companies, uh, specifically the Blue Lagoon and Hawes Orca, the utility company that operates uh, the power plant. And um, as far as we know today, there's been no sort of change in the authorities um, tone or perspective on this that this will be funded through taxpayer money as a means of um, protecting important infrastructure I mean that's quite understandable that the question is being raised um, so last week there was also a media incident in Grindavik what happened? yeah so this was um, quite an unusual story um, so obviously a uh, few days after the town of Krentavik had been evacuated, um, reporters and journalists were being admitted alongside some of the residents into town to take photographs and interviews and sort of monitor the situation in person so as to provide accurate reporting from uh, ground zero, essentially. And it was during one of these days when they were admitting residents and journalists back into the area that a reporter from Ruf was actually caught on a ring camera in someone's, um, someone's front door in Grindavik trying to open the door to the residents and uh, presumably or apparently in the footage looking for a key to get inside. Um, this caused quite the outrage among the homeowner, understandably, who posted on social media asking journalists to please pay respect, due respect to their privacy, that um, this wasn't okay. Um, and Roof, uh, the national broadcaster, responded immediately by apologizing, saying that um, the incident had owed to a, a kind of limit of, on time, that, um, well, they hinted that the photographer in question was sort of racing against the clock to gather footage and that he had made some poor decisions. Um, but I think most people who saw the footage and heard the apology 
were really interested in hearing what exactly the photographer was trying to do. And sure enough, he issued a personal apology a bit later that day, um, explaining that he had basically been um, asked to take some photographs, gather some footage from inside the home in Krintavik, and um, being pressured by time, he had this stupid idea uh, of trying to force entry into one of those homes to take photographs. That's what he said. That's all we know at the moment. So did this incident cause any consequences for media outlets and photographers reporting in Krintavik? Well, we don't know if there were any direct consequences of this incident, but what we do know is that um, after, shortly after this incident occurred, the authorities imposed a kind of new arrangement for media and journalists. Whether there's a direct causal link between this incident and that new arrangement, we don't know. But uh, essentially, since last Thursday, um, the authorities announced that there would be only one uh, photographer and one cameraman allowed into town at a time um, per day, and that these individuals in question were tasked with sharing their footage with other media outlets. Um, and this has been widely criticized by many journalists in Iceland who argue that they're being thwarted in doing their job um, by not being given access to the area. Um, and actually yesterday, which will be t Tuesday, they, there was a complete media blackout owing to poor weather. But yeah, um, it certainly does raise some questions whether this incident in particular had the effect of um, souring maybe some of the residents and some of the authorities on. After that the incident occurred, they uh, opened a, a kind of service center for Grintavik residents in the Toll House in downtown Reykjavik. And uh, the town of Grintavik, the municipality, sent out a press release asking the media to not attend sort of the opening of the service center, that they would receive a, a private invitation later. Again, we don't know if that's a, a consequence of this incident or not, but what we can say is that there's been um, a lot of discontent regarding this restricted access for the media, and there's also been a, a, a ban on flying drones into the area. I mean, it's always a fine line in between um, just staying on the ethical side because people's homes are being destroyed even though there is no current eruption right now um, I mean people have lost everything basically but yet it's still an hist historic event so it is of course crucial for the media to report about it and that there's also unbiased reporting um, from different outlets and not just one. It's interesting as well um, that we've or I've been following some of the coverage by foreign outlets and at least in one or two instances there has been um, a kind of slight inaccuracy in the reporting which may or may not be attributed to the fact that these foreign reporters are not being allowed into the area either and we had the Minister of Culture and Business Affairs state earlier this week that um, she felt that maybe this inaccuracy among foreign media may be traced to this sort of media blackout or media restriction. Um, but definitely, um, of course, it's very important to 
report uh, empathically and, you know, in a show of sensitivity towards the residents who are going through a tough time. So what is being done now to help the people of Grindavik who lost their homes? Yeah, so initially we saw um, numerous private companies offer assistance. Um, for example, when they opened the relief centers in Reykjavik, uh, Domino's Pizza was actually probably one of the first companies to, to say, uh, we'll deliver free pizza to anyone staying at these relief centers. And then you've seen other initiatives from gyms and other businesses trying to sort of pitch in to help the residents of Grindavik. And then, of course, you had uh, the government announcing that it was going to expedite a bill through parliament, which would secure financial support for the residents of Grindavik. Um, and that will be based on certain measures taken during COVID, which is just trying to give them a little bit of financial stability through these tough times. And then, as I mentioned, we had this service center opened in the toll house in downtown Reykjavik, where you've had sort of many different parties trying to assist with whatever questions and assistance they may need. And recently, I think, I believe it's today that there are four schools in Reykjavik that will be accepting Grindavik students. Um, so a lot has been done. You can really feel that uh, there's this, it's this moment in which everyone is sort of banding together and, and trying to be helped and show support um, and one of the parties which have been criticized for maybe not going far enough in their offering of support are the commercial banks who initially announced that they were going to freeze loans and mortgages of the Grindavik residents although they were unwilling to sort of freeze or, or put a pause on the accumulation of interest and indexation charges but what we've seen over the past few days is that government officials and committees have been meeting with the directors of, of the banks and um, they seem relatively hopeful that some decision will be made which will benefit the residents of Grindavik during these moments of uncertainty. So, yeah, that in a, in a nutshell, that's that's what we've been looking at. But very important. So as of right now, as Ragnar has already said, there is no volcanic eruption in Reykjanes. So we just need to see, and uh, geology is quite unpredictable to a certain degree. Yeah, and we have some disagreement within the field as well. So we had uh, one of Iceland's more respected volcanologists saying earlier this week that he believed that it was likely that the magma would sort of congeal, um, or even had congealed. And speaking for himself, he said, well, if I were a resident of Grindavik, I probably would return home before Christmas. But, um, yeah, that's uh, one opinion among many, a highly respected opinion. But, um, yeah, we, we've seen some scientists say that, well, maybe the likelihood of an eruption is dwindling, but we can't forget that um, people have made such pronouncements before and they've been wrong. So I, th I think it's important just to take it day by day and and uh, yeah listen to the scientists and the volcanologists and and the uh, and the consensus thereof exactly <laughs> so we have a few questions regarding this issue from our readers that we will answer shortly but first I have one question for you uh, because I always wonder this because I am from Germany and 
I know Germany still has one active region in Eifel. Um, but how is it for you as an Icelandic person? Is an event that is happening that is happening right now in Grindavik just kind of? I mean, of course, it's not normal. But are you still surprised by it by the volcanic eruptions that have occurred in the last three years, or is it just kind of already in your subconscious that it's in the realm of possibilities? Yeah, well, this um, these most recent events are uh, surprising and unique for the fact that they're occurring so close to the capital area and that these are eruptions that you can actually visit and see with your own eyes. Um, we've had previous eruptions, most notably the Eyjafjallajökull eruption in 2010, but that was, you know, uh, some distance from the capital area. It wasn't, you know, there were people who went, but, I mean, you couldn't get so close, and it was a different kind of eruption as well. So um, that makes it quite unique. I mean, the only sort of comparable eruption that we've had in recent times is, of course, the eruption in the Westman Islands in um, 1973. And um, that was, I mean, people have been hearkening back to that for the fact that, I mean, that, that eruption, I mean, actually happened in, in an inhabited area and people had to be evacuated aboard fishing vessels and it looked quite precarious and scary. Um, so, I mean, yeah, even though we have these volcanic eruptions, um, you know, with some regularity in Iceland, they usually occur farther away from inhabited areas in the capital region, and you don't get these sort of, what we have referred to as sort of these tourist eruptions that you can, you know, you can hike to, and you can stand at a safe distance and, and take pictures. So, yeah, it, it's been quite unique the past three eruptions. They have been. You could just have your little barbecue, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not the safest thing to do, but hey. No, right. Definitely a very, very different situation now. So one very frequently asked question was, how safe is it to ice to visit Iceland right now uh, or in the next few weeks? Y yeah, it is safe um, for tourists and uh, people who are not residing directly near where the seismic activity is, is centered. So, um, and, but it's an understandable question. We've actually seen reports from Iceland Air, the country's only major airline, that, um, that uh, sort of inbound bookings for tourists has declined because I think people are uncertain, you know, what, what to make of it. Is it okay to come here? Is it not? But you have to remember that this sort of seismic activity is happening at a very specific place uh, in, in the southern part of the Reykjanes Peninsula. Um, so it's not, it's highly unlikely that some kind of big volcanic eruption with lava flowing towards the capital area or to other inhabited areas aside from Grindavik would occur. So um, it's a localized risk. And thankfully, we've managed to evacuate everyone. Um, so yeah, coming to Iceland is perfectly safe as as uh, things currently stand. Exactly. And in the beginning, there was a little bit of talk if there could be a sub-water uh, eruption, but this possibility has now been out, out ruled, I believe, or quite it's not really likely that it will happen. So there will also, if it goes off, there won't be any ash, because ash only... Uh, happens if the magma comes in contact with water, either underneath a glacier, 
like in Eyjafjallajökull or for example now uh, with the Sötse under under the ocean. Right, yeah. So I think what we gather from the experts is that uh, in the event of an eruption, it's probably going to be quite similar to the ones we've seen before, maybe a bit more powerful. But of course, all of these are moving parts that are changing quite frequently. So yeah, I think... Um, take it day by day and, and see what happens exactly so you've already talked about it but do you know what's the situation as of today with the leftover animals in the town uh i'm not sure but i think that most of the animals in town have been rescued at least as of two days ago according to Tirfina, the organization that we mentioned earlier um there have been reports that are maybe a few cats still left in town. Uh, these are outdoor cats with uh, access to water and food and shelter. Um, but I think all of the other animals, like the thousands of chickens, uh, the many horses, the sheep, have all been, uh, yeah, been rescued. That's always good to hear. <laughs> yeah. I think that will bring a big relief to a lot of people. Definitely. Um, okay, so one specific question asked if there are any data centers in the area that will be affected or are already affected by these events yeah so as far as we know there is um, one specific data center located in Reykjanesbær which is close to the international airport um, and far away from where the seismic activity has been centered so it's far away from Grindavik uh, therefore far away from where the scientists believe an, an eruption could occur um, on the other hand, they most likely use electricity from the Schwarzenke geothermal power plant and is connected to the district heating system. So if an eruption damages the power plant, then it's likely that will have repercussions for the data center as well. Um, I will just have to see. I mean, I imagine they have backup generators and the like, but uh, let's hope that the power plant remains intact. So thank you for today. I think we have compiled quite the events that have happened within the last two weeks or even since October, since everything started. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening and tune in next time. Thank you. Yeah, and just a reminder to listeners that they can follow updates on the uh, ongoing geological unrest on, on our website, IcelandReview.com. Thank you. Thank you.